The right to a trial by jury, the right to sue. These may seem like things we're entitled to in the United States, but with sexual misconduct cases, it's complicated. But now new legislation is making it easier for survivors to get their day in court. In the many pages of contracts you sign when you're starting a new job, there's often what's called a forced arbitration clause. This means that an employer is forcing you to give up your right to a day in court if or when the company violates the law. This affects roughly tens of millions of workers around the country. In a major win for the Me Too movement, employers are now barred from forcing people into arbitration in cases of sexual misconduct. Here to explain more is Gail Eisenberg, partner and head of employment practice at Loftus and Eisenberg Limited. Welcome to the program, Gail. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Elena Hampton, a political consultant and women's advocate. You were, you may remember her sexual harassment case against a top aide to former Illinois House Speaker Mike Madigan. Thank you for joining us, Elena. Thanks for having me. Gail, we'll start with you. Tell us a bit more about these arbitration clauses and contracts when they are used and what arbitration looks like. So oftentimes um, when you're starting a new job, you'll get a number of documents to sign. You know, you'll get a document saying you've read the entire employment manual. You'll get, you know, all these documents for your taxes. But you also might get an arbitration agreement, a pre-dispute arbitration agreement, which essentially would say that if there was a dispute between the employer and the employee, that you would not have a right to go to um, court to seek redress. But instead, you would need to go to a private decision maker, oftentimes chosen by the employer, paid by the employer, um, who has an interest in finding for the employer. And oftentimes, if you do actually read that agreement, you're saying to yourself, I'm never going to be in that position. I'm never going to be in a position of dispute between my employer. You don't anticipate sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, And so even if you notice it, you sign it without really understanding what that provision would do for a potential claim. So last week, Congress gave final approval on this legislation that would limit an employer's ability to force arbitration, and President Joe Biden is expected to sign it when it reaches his desk. What specifically would this law do? Essentially, the employer would not be able to enforce a predispute arbitration provision against an employee who is alleging sexual harassment or sexual assault um, as it relates to a claim related to those allegations. Um, the, the potential victim could still elect to use arbitration. There are certainly times when it would be in their interest to do so, um, but they would not be able to enforce, the employer couldn't enforce it against the employee. And can you tell us why, Gail, why is this legislation significant? It's very significant. This is, you know, probably the biggest change in arbitration in memory um, but it would allow a victim to choose her forum, to, to have a jury, to have um, a public record, um, and have her dispute heard in the public eye um, within her decision as to where it should be heard. Um, having your case heard in a open court um, has certain protections associated with it that you don't get in arbitration. There's usually no real right to appeal an an arbitrator's decision, um, and you have limited abilities to obtain evidence. In many cases, especially with sexual harassment, I would want to be looking for pattern evidence, 
I would want to be looking at how a particular um, harasser was treating other people in that environment, and I might not be able to get that kind of evidence in arbitration. Um, it also just statistically is better off for the employee, um, and, and arbitrators are more often more likely to find in favor of an employer than the employee um, because of that iterated play, that the employer is more likely to show up again in front of the arbitrator, while the employee is just there that one time. Elena, I want to bring you into the conversation. You weren't bound by arbitration when you brought your case against a top mannequin aide. What did it mean for you to be able to take your case to court? Um, it, being able to take my case to court was a huge deal, and having the public aspect of it was my way to hold the perpetrator and people involved accountable. It, it allowed for transparency. It allowed for the public to have an opinion on what was going on. And um, it, it really just led to accountability. And I needed the, the public aspect of that. And I think arbitration is often held in private, um, which really leads to a lack of transparency for victims. Now, Elena, women reach out to you for help in navigating workplace sexual harassment cases. What has that been like? Um, it's, you know, it's been two years actually since my lawsuit settled, over two years now. And people still regularly reach out to me for support and help. Um, it, it, I'm got, I've gotten so used to it because so many people reach out to me. So I have a number of employment discrimination attorneys that I communicate with and refer these victims too. And Gail is actually one of them. She's been extremely helpful. Um, but I do my best to help the victims to the best of my ability and um, help them get connected to a PR professional if that's what they're needing, or more specifically a lawyer, because that's generally the, the route I try to take. And Elena, have you interacted with women who have been bound by arbitration? I, I, I'm sure I have. I just don't get that much into the detail. Um, I really see my my position as just someone that is able to refer them to an attorney who can give them the ins and outs. I don't like to give any sort of legal advice since I don't have a law degree. Sure. Now, Gail, some people don't even know they're bound by arbitration. How, how common is that? Very common. Um, like I said, you're often given you know documents upon documents upon hire. But there are other times in your employment relationship where you might um, become bound by an arbitration agreement. For example, when someone is giving you a bonus, sometimes the fine print includes provisions like an arbitration agreement or and a class action waiver, um, which are usually hand-in-hand. Um, they also might appear in other ways. Um, you know, famously, there's a couple of employers who simply emailed out saying we've changed our our dispute resolution policy and if you don't respond to this email by x date you are hereby bound and those have been found to be enforceable and thankfully with this legislation they will not be enforceable against somebody who's alleging sexual harassment or sexual assault now gail how does arbitration limit how you can serve your clients well for I, I'm still able to bring an EEOC charge, a charge of discrimination for someone who has a sexual harassment claim against their employer with an arbitration agreement, but employers do use it as leverage. They certainly recognize that there is limited transparency, as Elena mentioned, um, and oftentimes that 
is used to pressure a potential victim into a quicker resolution that might be more beneficial to the employer. Um, it also impacts my ability to raise class claims. Like I said, the arbitration agreements usually go hand-in-hand hand with class waivers. And especially when it comes to a hostile work environment, it, it can be that you know, it's not just a single employee who's the victim of sexual harassment, but an entire environment is permeating with sexual harassment. You know, Gail, and we want to bring those on a class right. level. But Gail, proponents of, arbit- of the arbitration process say it's faster and more cost-effective. What do you think about that? Well, it certainly is, uh, can be in business disputes. Um, I don't think that the, the, those who wanted to have arbitration as an alternative, that was, that was the point, but it hasn't really borne out that way. Um, there's still a lot of pre-arbitration um, motion practice that has made it more and more expensive. Um, but the very fact that those, those fees are being paid by the employer in most instances in order to avoid um, arguments that the agreement was unconscionable um, means that the arbitrator has an interest in finding for that employer. Um, they want to be hired again. They want to be paid again. Well, Elena, this bill received broad bipartisan support. What do you make of all that? I think it's really fantastic. I think with the new measures in place, workers and women um, employees are going to have more protections under the law and employers are going to be more proactive about educating employees and trying to prevent um, inappropriate situations from happening in the workplace. Elena, what else would you like to see happen in Illinois for people who have experienced sexual harassment or assault? So a lot of laws changed with the publicity of my lawsuit. Um, So we've really moved in a a good direction. However, I still think the statute of limitations um, is too short. Uh, It did expand once my lawsuit became public. Um, And then one other thing I can think of in Illinois specifically is Through the rise of the Me Too movement, uh, Illinois found out that the state inspector general position had been vacant for two years. Um, Through that time, uh, there was an interim inspector general and then another person appointed to the position, um, both of whom have left that position now, and that inspector general uh, position is vacant once again, and I believe it has been since December. And the state inspector general is... Uh, a person that would investigate ethics violations, um, one such as sexual harassment and assault in the workplace. And I feel like since the Me Too movement kind of comes in and out of the media and waves, this is something that has kind of fell under the radar. And I think it's something that needs to be um, resolved. Well, this is Reset. I'm Michael Puente in for Sasha Ann Simons. We've been discussing the milestone Me Too legislation that recently passed Congress. I've been speaking with Elena Hampton, political consultant and women's advocate. Also with us is Gail Eisenberg, partner at Loftus and Eisenberg Limited. Thanks to both of you. We've talked about the importance of being able to take a sexual harassment or assault case to court. But one thing a claimant needs once they're in court is evidence. 
which in part in assault cases is often gleaned from medical forensic exams or so-called rape kits. But not everyone wants to get this exam. Proposed legislation in Illinois is attempting to address this hesitancy. Joining us now to give us context is Dr. Monica Pizzelli, emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital. She's on the Sexual Assault Medical Forensic Services Implementation Task Force of the Illinois College of Illinois College of Emergency Physician. Welcome to the show, Doctor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Can you share what hesitation you've had patients express about getting a rape kit? Um, Overall, it's very difficult for survivors to come forward. According to the national data, usually only one in four survivors will decide to come forward. Other barriers, meaning that they need coming for care, sometimes there are concerns about their privacy or confidentiality. Uh, In Illinois, and that's a national law too, survivors cannot be billed for medical forensic exams. No copays, no nothing, no bills are sent to them. And patients who are uninsured, Hospitals will send a request for reimbursement to the Illinois Department of Health and Family Services. But patients who have private insurance, the Illinois law requires that the insurance is billed. So the legislation uh, sponsored by Senator Julie Morrison, there's a legislation proposing to give the option to survivors to opt out from using private insurance when they feel there is a concern for privacy or confidentiality. Doctor, why do you think it's important for people to get this exam after being assaulted? Medical reason, that's obvious. There's a medical forensic part too. There's a collection evidence that later can be used in court. And it's important that the exam is done by a person who has been trained in administering medical forensic exam. Additionally, other than the medical part and the evidence collection, it is a first step forward to restore power and control to the survivor after the assault. It is a major trauma. So anything that we can do to feel them safer, more secure, and support it and done it right, it is a step in healing for the survivor. You know, doctor, it's illegal in Illinois to charge patients for a rape kit, but insurance companies do get billed for this test. Explain why that's a problem. Most of the time it's not. I think majority of people will not have any concerns about having their insurance bills. But there are some situations when it can cause harm or prevent the survivor from seeking care. There's in a scenario when a patient is a survivor of domestic violence and is on their partner's or husband's insurance. If they learn that the insurance will be billed, may stop them from seeking care. Afterwards, if the explanation of benefit, which is usually sent to the primary insurance holder, if it arrives in the mail and the perpetrator can find out about the ER visit, can put the patient patient in danger of further abuse. And in an abusive relationship, one of the most dangerous moments 
is when the perpetrator realizes that their partner is trying to leave the relationship. And seeing the evidence that the survivor was seeking care may send just such a message. Another group that may be affected by this law are young adults who are still under parents' insurance. And if they have concerns, if they're not ready to disclose to their parents what happened, they may be discouraged from getting care after an assault. Mm-hmm. What do you want to see this legislation do? I would like to have for survivors to have an option to say, this time I don't want my insurance billed. And they would be treated as if they're uninsured. And no documentation, no paper, paper trail would follow this visit. Doctor, you've called billing insurance for a rape kit a safety issue for survivors. Why is that? For the reason I just described, as I said, in many cases, it's not relevant. But there's those very special situations, delicate situations when... Right. Letting someone know, especially if the patient is not the primary insurance holder, somebody else can find out that they were seeking care for abuse or assault, and it can put them in danger if the perpetrator knows about it. And how does this affect minors? Doctor, how how does this affect minors? Yeah, yeah. That's a two-level question. (laughs) Uh, For Illinois, some uh, teenagers can seek care when it relates to sexual issues, sexual health, and abuse without parental consent. Okay. Insurance issues, I would actually have to double-check on minors, as far as the insurance billing and opting out. Um, And for sexual assault, we do need to notify DCFS for minors as well. So that's why I said this is a little bit of a more complex issue and I don't think there's a straight answer. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do men ever request this exam? Yes, but much less often. And from data that we have, Proportionally, less men come forward than women. Doctor, what will you be? Male mm-hmm. Yes, sir. I was just going to ask you, what will you be keeping your eye on moving forward? I hope the legislation will go through and patients will have the option of opting out from using private insurance. All right, doctor. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Monica Pizzelli, emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital and member of the Sexual Assault Medical Forensic Services Implementation Task Force. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted and you need help, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE.